Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 215 of Allied Strategies. My name is Tristan. Joining me, as always, is my friend, Ben. Hello, everyone. And my friend, Sam. Hello. Welcome back from the Mythic Championship. Ben, how did you do? I went 10-5-1, and one, which notably is better than 10-6. and six. And Sam, how did you do? I went 10-6, and six, which <laughs> uh, was one of the hardest 10-6s of my Magic career, I would say. Yeah, it was brutal. Also, I, I would... I didn't mean to be daggering, Sam. I meant to compare to my constant record of 10 and 6. <laughs> but I guess it was a nice side effect. I assumed I, it was I, daggering, I Sam. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was, I'm one win short of rivals, probably, most likely, I think. Um, so it was a, and I lost the last two rounds. So it was, it was a pretty tough uh, last couple rounds, you know, to go to go from, like, oh, I'm doing this, you know, I've got a really good record, I just have to win one of the next two, to actually this whole season was meaningless and I get nothing, was like, uh, it felt pretty bad. So, and so it, how, it did not endear me to the system. As somebody, for, sorry, for our listeners, unlike me, who are maybe not super plugged into exactly how Rivals works, was this the last thing that, that qualifies for it? And what about the MPL? Isn't there one more Mythic Champion this championship this year? So there, there is one more Mythic Championship. The rivals slots are kind of segmented off so this was the last time that i believe uh you could that you could qualify with tabletop points the the like rival slots are segmented by tabletop and uh and arena so i think i i missed the opportunity to qualify via tabletop points um and i'm not qualified for the arena event so i'm not going to qualify that way obviously um, it's the, the reason why it's confusing is because nobody really understands how the system works. So no one knows exactly what you actually need to qualify. Um, and like, there's some things where people above me get invited to the MPL, which opens up slots for me. And it's, it's all very confusing. So, you know, I don't want to like say that I'm completely out, but it's not looking great. I see. Yeah. So the, there's... Because the MPL results are still based on that last Mythic Championship, right? So that's uh, that those changes may affect you. Okay. Well, good right. luck. Thanks. Benjamin, how about you? How was your season all? Um, I finished more or less mediocre. I don't think I was ever in contention for rivals like Sam was. But I had two of my best three finishes on the Pro Tour this year. Um, this last PT and then the one before it. So I guess as far as like personal measuring stick goes, I feel like um, I've been I feel like I have improved this year. And in particular, I think my limited records at the Pro Tour have have been a lot a lot better recently. Um, so that's something I'm proud of. Uh, but you know, I've I've always been sort of perennially barely gold, and uh, you know I'll have to see how that fits into this new system, like whether or not. I have to figure out like what what a realistic goal will should be for me moving forward. Like if I should set my sights on rivals, if I should set my sights on playing, you know, two of the players tour finals or something or maybe one or yeah. That but that's that's sort of how I, how I feel. I see. Well, I think uh you know that as we move further into this kind of new players tour 
era. Obviously, that's going to be interesting to see how it shakes out. But uh, as the last sort of tabletop pro tour has just passed, I think it's it's worth noting that that was a you know a good time for uh, the host of the show generally. You know, with me as a, a notable exception, a lot of pro tour success uh, between previous <laughs> or between everybody else at the pro tour from time to time. So. Uh, I guess a, a fond farewell to the Pro Tour uh, coming out of Allied Strategies here. Okay, let's move on to our main topic, which is going to be how many lands to play in Limited. But first, for the next 10 minutes, we'll instead do other things and talk about some other stuff. Um, as per the use. As per use, yeah. Uh, first off, we have our illustrious friends of the podcast to thank over at Patreon.com. Uh, they are Kiki Jiki, Winchester, Kyle. And Hot Soup, our newest uh, illustrious friend. We're not 100% sure if this Hot Soup is the same, um, the same, like, we, we have a friend locally who uh, cosplayed as Hot Soup at a Grand Prix once and had, like, a, an actual, like, a soup bowl full of the card Hot Soup and would run around saying Hot Soup. Um, so this may be that same person or it may be another Hot Soup enthusiast, perhaps. Uh, I'm sure there are many worldwide. Uh, but certainly welcome to the illustrious friend category, Hot Soup. Uh, and Hot Soup, what, their birthday was last week when we unfortunately had a time-shifted episode. Uh, so we will instead be delivering their happy birthday song this week, which they've requested to be in French. So uh, prepare your ears for that, everybody. Uh, or hit that skip button now. Those are your options. You know, skip the, the most podcast apps these days have like a skip 30 seconds one. You're going to want to smash that probably two times now, uh, and you'll be safe. Okay. Uh, here we go, though, from from the top. You guys ready? Yep. Okay, three, two, one. Joyeux anniversary. Joyeux anniversary. Joyeux anniversary, hot soup. Hot soup. Joyeux anniversary. Benjamin, were you just... I feel like Ben wasn't even saying Were you just humming, Benjamin? Uh, I was speaking in French. You just couldn't understand. Jack Hughes. <laughs> um, all right. In addition, we have our good friends of the podcast, which is a, an ever swelling number of of uh, people. They are Adam, Matt, Britton, Kyle, Caroline, Eric, Zach, Sam, Duncan, Baptiste, Wilson, Tobias, Paul, Ryan, Jarvis, cursed you, Booster Therapy, Tim, the Mug Giver. Greg, Ari, Ari, Phil, and Will. Thanks for your support. Thanks so much. Uh, this week, we do have a question of the week, not from Patreon, but from Twitter. Uh, this one comes from at ValuablePie, who asks, Hello, friends. I have a question. Uh, are enfranchised Magic the Gathering players good at teaching the game? Uh, I think they could be way better. Uh, so, yeah, okay, enfranchised Magic the Gathering players, who who's better at teaching the game? Somebody who's enfranchised into, the, into Magic or somebody less enfranchised? I think that... In my opinion, that like whether or not somebody is super enfranchised in the game may help them be a better teacher of the game, but I think that the the skills are kind of tangentially related to each other. Like whether there are people I know who are great at magic and I don't think would be very good at teaching a new player the game. Certainly the more you know of the game, the better, but I think you really have to think about how a new player learns things. And I think if you've been playing magic super hardcore for ten years, it's actually kind of that might make it harder for you to understand the thought processes of a new player. So I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm split here. I think that in general, though, the more that somebody's played Magic, the more likely they will be able to teach somebody new at it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think 
I think you're kind of right. It's really I don't I don't think that experience with magic is going to be a strong indicator one way or the other about how good you're going to be at teaching. It's more about how how well you can understand what the things a new player needs to know and what they're confused by are going to be like some new players, you know, most new players are not going to need to know the intricacies of how the stack works. That's just not a very important part of magic. It only comes up in very limited spots. So like kind of brushing by that in your explanation to get more into the nitty gritty about like how, to, how mana works and how you play, you know, play one land per turn and you tap it, you know, you tap them and then you get to untap them. So they're like temporarily used up things like that. I think are going to be a lot more important and, it's really how much you can get into the mindset of understanding which parts of the game are important, fun, and confusing to new players. I think that's going to be the key. Yeah, and, and I think there's sort of a, a salespersonship skill here of learning what specific things are appealing to mag- about magic to the person you're teaching and then figuring out ways to emphasize those in your curriculum, right? So, uh, I Because th- I, th- I think that for different people, they're going to learn best in different ways, and it's often, you know, there's a lot of stuff in magic that might be hard for them at first. So you want to make sure that you keep uh, a focus on the things that they most enjoy and, you know, give them decks full of the kinds of cards they enjoy and put them in gameplay situations that are, you know, the ones that you think they enjoy. And I think that varies from person to person. Yeah. And I think the color pie is actually going to play a big role there too, where like, you know, you can really emphasize whatever the thing is you think they're going to enjoy the most about whatever by giving them a deck of the right colors yes 100 percent. i think that's that's big true benjamin do you have any, any thoughts here about teaching magic yeah i i think they're kind of orthogonal skills as well uh, i think that you'll find that a bunch of heavily enfranchised players will care about a bunch of things that new magic players just don't need to care about and so they may think that it's important to tell the those things to new players but in reality it's just not it's like you can you can play magic without knowing ninety nine percent of the rules, right? Um, yeah, I do think that the truly truly excellent teachers of magic are probably also pretty like have played a lot of it. I'm sure. Like, and there's definitely also a base amount of knowledge of the game that you need. Like, you need to be comfortable enough with it that you're you know there's not rules questions that you're having about basic to intermediate interactions that you can't answer. Um. Okay, Benjamin. What is your card of the week? My card of the week is Massacre Girl. Massacre Girl is a legendary human assassin for 3BB. Uh, She's a 4-4. She has Menace. And when Massacre Girl enters the battlefield, each other creature gets minus one, minus one until end of turn. Whenever a creature dies this turn, each creature other than Massacre Girl gets minus one, minus one until end of turn. So... As listeners of the show will remember, I was trying to trying very hard to build a cat oven deck uh, that I could play at the Pro Tour. I didn't end up playing a cat oven deck. I just played Sultai, um, Sultai Foods at the Pro Tour. Uh, but there was a breakout deck that was a, a cat oven, um, a Sultai colored cat oven deck with Trail of Crumbs and Massacre Girl that did really well uh, in the Oko portion of the event. And I think the key, the missing, the missing, the piece that I was missing is Massacre Girl. Because it turns out that Massacre Girl is a great size for the format. Like, the format is really heavily based off of 3-3s. So having a 4-4 is just really good. And then also, 
it turns out that the the food decks are actually kind of weak to Wrath of God. Like, you might not think... Like, they're not super weak to Wrath of God because a lot of their power is in Planeswalkers. But the weird thing about Nyssa is that it doesn't actually generate card advantage for you. It just turns your lands into creatures. So, like, when you lose your creatures, like, if you get Wrath when you have Nyssa in play, you do actually still lose all of those cards. It's not like it generated free cards for you. So, like, having this Wrath of God effect can really help catch you up against these Sultai food decks. Like, your opponent might find themselves with a Planeswalker in play, but only two lands or whatever, which is not a great place to be. Um, And it can really help make up for all the time you spend dirtling with Trail of Crumbs and playing, you know, ovens and cats and things that aren't that high impact on the board. Um, I was super impressed with Massacre's ability to catch you up, Massacre Girl's ability to catch you up from behind, and then also just plays really synergistically with the deck. You can trigger it for every food you have by bringing back a cat in between, you know, minus one, minus ones, and you can do all these cool tricks with it. And it just, it's a really good card in in a really good deck, and I was really impressed. Sam, what is your card of the week? Okay, so I, I have a card of the week, but before I get to it, I have to come clean about something that happened a few weeks ago, um, you know, when we were recording our time-shifted episode. I brought up the card Arkham Slay and mentioned how I didn't think it worked in the rules because it required a defending player to have a snow land to give a creature vigilance. And as it turns out, you actually, in the beginning of combat step, all opponents become defending players, regardless of whether they're being attacked or not. So you can go to beginning of combat, use your Arkham Slay, give your creature vigilance, and then attack with it. That's a completely legal play. So Arkham Slay is actually functional. Um, I, you know, I didn't know this at the time, or maybe I did and was doing it as some sort of secondary market manipulation trying to lower the price of Arkham Slay. I'll leave that to the listener to decide. Cool. Damn. But <laughs> you got to save that content for our Patreon. <laughs> but I just wanted to come clean. Arkham Slay does in fact work. Um, you know, that that's that that's that. So my card of the week this week is Goblin King, which is red red one for a creature goblin. It does not have any other types. I'll get to that in a minute. It has the text other goblin creatures get plus one, plus one, and have mountain walk. And it's a 2-2 for red, red, one. Now, where what the, the thing that I've got to be in my bonnet about with Goblin King is they just added a new creature type in Throne of Eldraine that is the creature type Noble. And Goblin King, Lord of Atlantis, Eladomri, Lord of Leaves, all of these lords were left out of the nobility in this creature type edition. And I want Goblin King to get his to get his crown. I want him to get his nobility. So, you know, uh, tweet at wizards, whatever. Let your voices be heard. Get Goblin King his noble creature type. I think... How do you know necessarily that the Goblin King is a noble, though? So Maybe the Goblin monarchy works in a different way. What what does noble mean, if, if not reserved for kings? Well, I, I think that... It fits pretty nicely with, you know, the his- history of Earth, at least, for nobility to be assigned kind of arbitrarily and, you know, through heredity and stuff and people who should be nobles maybe aren't and people who shouldn't be nobles maybe are. So I think that it's it's 
if there is one creature type that would be most flavorful to be assigned to some weird and wrong creatures, I think Noble is it. So uh, I don't have a problem with this one. So here's, here's the definition for Noble. Belonging to a hereditary class with high social or political status. Which it seems pretty clear to me that Goblin King has high political status or high social status. Not sure which, but one of those. Is, is Noble Hierarcha Noble? That's wow. <laughs> oh really get to the heart of the issue. Yeah. All right. I think it's not. Also, Although, wait, I think Noble Hierarchy is noble, not a noble. Yeah, I think in this case, noble is more like an adjective rather than. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I actually think noble hierarch doesn't need to be a noble. But, e- okay, even if you'll grant that goblin societies work differently, do you think Lord of Atlantis is not a noble? I think that Lord of Atlantis, yeah, I think that you could make a case for an exception for Goblin King due to goblininess and nobility being antithetical to each other, but I don't know about uh, the other ones. All right, my card of the week is Geometric Weird. Geometric Weird is a a playtest card from the Mystery Boosters. Uh, It's a single red mana for a 1-1 weird. At the beginning of each end step, you may have its base power and toughness each become equal to the greatest number of spells and abilities from different sources that were on the stack simultaneously that turn. Now, Benjamin, as a mathematical expert and an expert in weirdness, can you explain to me what geometrics we- Geometric Weird's ability has to do with geometry? Oof. I mean, really doesn't everything have to do with geometry in some ways? Right? Like, it refers to a number... Numbers are used in geometry on occasion. And it's also possible that that's, you know, you're bringing up something odd or perhaps weird about the card. And maybe that was what was intended all Ah, along. okay. So it's it's a weird because the, the card text is weird and doesn't make sense yeah. with the name. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for this clarification. Uh, and, of course, Geometric Weird, also fun fact, that is Ben's nickname. So uh, shout out to you for getting an invitational card. All right. Moving on to our main topic. This week's main topic is how many lands should you play in Limited? Uh, specifically in, well, I guess I guess it could be in Sealed Deck as well. We could talk about a little bit of the difference between the two, but I was mostly thinking Draft, uh, and I think that's probably what most of the discussion will be around. Um, so, for starters, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lob a little bit of a softball at you guys. Why is the default number of lands in Limited 17? Uh, uh, how, one, yeah. how confident are you that this is a softball? Do you believe that you could explain why the default is 17? All right, I'm, I'm going to lob a little bit of a, you know, a curveball at you, Benjamin. Um, <laughs> why is the default number of lands in a limited deck 17? So 17, I believe, is pretty close to 40% of the 40-card deck. Um, I don't remember if it's exactly there or not. Um, but I believe that percentage is typically higher than what you would normally play in a constructed deck. And I believe the reason for that is that limited decks tend to have more expensive cards in them. Um, And you, like, the expensive cards are typically more, like, you know, relative to the power level of the format, more powerful. Um, And so you want to be able to cast them in most games. So you don't mind playing extra lands to make sure that you can um, play your expensive cards. I think that that is, like, the high-level idea that I understand. Um, As for why the specific number 17... I believe it is just, you know, the magic hive mind has converged on 17 as being the right number 
for most decks. Um, and I think that probably the Magic Hive Mind has a higher sample size than any individual person. So I imagine like if the right number were not 17, we would probably have figured out uh, that it that it should be a different number by now. I think you're missing one additional factor, um, which is that you tend to not have any dual lands in limited mm-hmm. as compared to constructed. So you need a higher land count overall to get to the same, uh, like the same, I guess, uh, number of colored sources, you know, on a per card basis. Yeah. If you need, uh, like if you, if you want to have a lot of, because most limited decks are two color, right? Like most, most limited formats, the standard play is to play two color decks. Uh, and you're mostly playing with basic lands. There are very rarely dual lands in decks, and sometimes dual lands existing in a format that is two-color uh, are a reason why you see fewer than 17 lands in decks uh, at that time. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's it's color sources are a big reason as well that set, that you're seeing more lands in limited than in constructed. Okay. Okay, so I, I looked it up. 16 is 40%, yeah. which is, I think, the typical amount that you see in constructed decks. Constructed decks often have 24 lands, which is the 40% equivalent. Um, and then 17 is 42.5%. So you, you you really have to justify... I guess w- what we're doing here is we're justifying that one extra land. We're justifying the jump from, from 40% to 42.5%. Right. Uh, and I think let's we can even talk in a way that will explain this further about the factors that would make you interested in even more lands. So going up to 45% lands with 18 uh, or even above that. Um, So let's talk about some of the factors that make it so that you would want to do that. I think one of the first big ones uh, is if you have a bunch of mana sinks in your deck. So if you have a bunch of cards that will allow you to turn eight mana, six mana, you know, lots of activations that cost four mana or whatever into value, uh, then those, I think, are a good reason to add extra lands to your deck because you are likely to be able to do something with them even when you're flooded. Uh, and I think that's a, a big thing. That I, I feel like people often incorrectly stay at 17 lands when they have a deck full of mana sinks. I don't know if you guys have uh, agree with that, though. Yeah, mm-hmm. I definitely agree. Like the, the Some of the sort of famous mana sinks that I think of are like the Invokers mm-hmm. from... Uh, from Rise of the Eldrazi and uh, Level Up Creatures, also from Rise of the Eldrazi. I guess they've actually run back the Invokers a couple times, huh? Yeah, they did. They did a cycle in BFZ. Um, yeah, and the, the like. It's not that uncommon, or even like um, I don't remember the name of the card, but there was a two mana two two from uh, Guilds of Ravnica that you could like pay six. I want to say to give plus two plus two or plus four plus four plus maybe. Five. Five. It was five. Yeah, and cards like that just give you a lot of protection from getting too flooded in the, you know, in the early to or in the in the late to to mid late games, um, and I think people sometimes are a little too concerned about uh, about having you know all these spells in their deck, especially when they start to add mediocre spells in in place of these cards. Right, because that's the thing, right, is the the 18th land is against the 23rd spell, right? Like, the 23rd best spell in your deck is often quite marginal. Um, If you're thinking about some, like, weird combat trick or situational... I mean, maybe the way you draft, Tristan. I mean... (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry, yeah, the way I draft, which is against other good players often, uh, then yeah, the, there aren't that many great. But you know, Benjamin's drafts where you know he's playing against you know uh, Tristan, for example, other bad players, bots, yeah, bots. <laughs> then he he may have an easier time getting twenty three good spells. But at the high levels of competition that I frequent, uh, it's it's a, a tough thing to do. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, one other thing worth considering is like just the curve of one's deck. I mean, this is kind of, this is the most obvious one. I think this is the one that people most correctly do is when they realize they have three six drops in their deck, they are more likely to, you know, throw in that 18th land or, or cut a six drop or whatever. Um, but that's definitely a, a big factor. Like if your curve doesn't start at two, if it starts at three or whatever, uh, you absolutely need more lands also. So uh, a higher low end or high end of your curve is a, a big consideration here too. I think it's also important to recognize uh, where, like, your critical cards come in. Because I feel like you can often sort of trick yourself by just looking at exactly the cards you have instead of, like, which of these cards is it actually important that I cast on time? And, you know, why is that Why is that important? And what am I hoping to accomplish? You know, what, what am I looking to actually do when I curve out? I think that's something that people could do better at considering. Yeah, and, so can and, you give an example of a spell that you don't really care about if you play it on curve or not? Um, sure. Like, yeah, if you have a bunch of, um, I don't know, let's say like, uh, witching wells or uh, like cantrips of some kind. Fa- they okay. don't really. I, I've seen Sorry? like I've seen screenshots of of decks that have like fay of two fay of wishes, and they're in the two drop slot. And I feel like people often do this where they'll like put spells with their cheapest mode at, at the place in the curve of the cheapest mode on the spell. And like, yes, that's true, but you need to be careful when using that to evaluate how many lands to put in your deck, right? Because, uh, you know, cards that have modality and, and stuff, you, you'd like to have more options with. Yeah, and I mean, that is one of the great things about Fae of Wishes is that it's very flexible and you can you can play it at two or at four or at six as a turn you know we can wish for something and play it in the same turn but i think you're definitely right like imagine that fey of wishes is a card for some reason you couldn't return it to your hand like you didn't think that was a reasonable thing to do and it was your only way to win so playing it at two really cost you then you need to actually consider you know does this actually count does this help keep me alive if i really can't afford to be playing it on two mana very often right yeah I don't know other stuff like that. Ben, did you have when you when you asked that question? Did you have something in mind that you thought fit the bill well? Um, I mean, I think the most typical example is like removal. Like often you don't mm. want to be casting Scorching Dragonfire on turn two, but it, I mean it is an upside to the card that you can. Yeah, um, or, or like things that buff your whole team, like uh, Unbreakable s- Formation or Silver Flame Ritual type stuff, uh, are often later game plays than they look like on the curve. Yeah, and I mean, Silver Flame Ritual is like one of those cards that it really doesn't matter if you play it on time, because if you didn't draw enough lands to play it, then you probably drew more creatures, so you can just, you know, spend your turns casting those creatures instead, and then use Silver Flame Ritual to pump them all up. Like, as long as you still have creatures in your hand to deploy, the fact that you can't cast Silver Flame Ritual is not that big a deal, right? Right. Yeah, it's you're, you're excited about the fact that you're going you're gonna to play it on more creatures, definitely. Okay, uh, one other factor here that's worth mentioning is ability lands. If, if you have a land with an activated ability or a land that sacrifices for value or something or uh, anything like that, or even just like a colorless land with utility of some kind, 
because that won't count as one of your colored sources. These are all factors that will increase the, the chance that you don't want to play 18 lands. Because ability lands are like mana sinks that also they're also like spells that don't cost that, that only you know they they take a land slot up right. So it's fine to add an extra land under those circumstances too. Yeah, I think this is sort of like a special case of a mana sink. Just, you know, if you have a Castle Lockthwain or whatever, you should be <clears throat> more inclined to play more lands because there are going to be turns where you want to cast a spell and then also activate Castle Lockthwain. Uh, I think I think actually whenever you have, like, a lot of card draw in your deck, you're, you want to, um, like, play extra lands so that you can... You, you're just more likely to have the raw cards in your hand to double spell with. And in order to double spell, you need multi- You need lots of lands, right? Yeah, and you know, you're the just card draw spells are expensive, and you want to be able to play. A, yeah, I, I agree with that definitely. Just like if you play a normal game of limited without drawing extra cards, you maybe you can double spell like once on turn four or five or whatever. But you just you don't double spell very often at all um, because you just you know play your cards as you draw them, and you try to curve out, and you try to play your expensive cards when you can. But it, you know, if you're if you're casting, uh, you know, unexplained visions or whatever, and drawing a bunch of cards, then you're going to be able to cast multiple spells in in many turns. And to do that, you need lands. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, one kind of famous example of a format that, for many other parts, looked like it would be a low land count format, but ended up being a high land count format was original Zendikar, right? Uh, where decks were aggressive and low curve and you know, not card draw intensive, but you still played a bunch of lands because all of your creatures had landfall to get plus two plus two or whatever. Um, so that, I guess, is kind of an interesting twist where if playing lands triggers stuff on your things, then uh, they're also basically spells and it's worth adding more of them to your deck. Yeah, that was a super weird format <laughs> because like you said, it was really aggressive. So like people played very low curves <laughs> and yet you still saw decks that were like half lands sometimes. Yeah, I remember I had a deck in that format which, which had like two Valakuts and I played like 19 mountains in addition to the two Valakuts or something like that. I mean, it's like really good. Spire, That's yeah, Spire Barrages. <laughs> but yeah, I guess the, this is a very special case, but I suppose it could come up in the future. It doesn't even have to be landfall exactly, but just some weird mechanic that makes you want to play lands. I think I think there was a, an archetype in Modern Horizons Limited actually. Which was not like a landfall archetype, but it was like a a lands and graveyard type thing. And I think Sam, you you often spoke about how you wanted to just play a bunch of lands in that archetype, right? Yeah, in the red green lands matter, I guess is what what it was sort of was deck. I was pretty happy that that format also had cycling lands, which you would I think take pretty highly. Um, but I was I was happy to often start nineteen or twenty lands. That was actually my favorite deck to draft. It required a little bit of rare, so it was not the easiest thing to get into but uh i thought that yeah i thought 19 or 20 lands was right in that deck more often than not because you really wanted to hit like your first five land drops every single game and also you wanted to have lands to discard for various reasons like there are just a lot of ways to discard lands for value so just having lands in hand was great yeah i think cycling lands are a good thing to touch on as well like i mean i guess that's an ability land but uh, things that can be lands or not lands are a good way to have to add extra lands to your deck and get the benefit of preventing mana screw without increasing the risk of mana flood, right? Yeah, actually, I, I have a question for you for y'all. When you have cards like uh, 
thrill of possibilities or tormenting voice. Do you see that as a justification to play more lands or fewer lands? I, I prefer to play more lands in those situations because uh, when you have extra lands, discard like discarding one to throw a possibility is a great thing to do. But when you have not a lot, enough lands, it's like hard to find time to thrill and discard a spell and like you know I don't know I I, I prefer I prefer going up on lands when I have thrills throws a possibility rather than down. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I guess one thing that I think is worth kind of pointing out is I would say I'm. I tend to look for reasons that I get to play an 18th land more than like, uh, you know, trying to find reasons not to play an 18th land. If that yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I love any deck where I can make an argument to play an 18th land. Like that's, those are good times. I, I'm very happy anytime I get to uh, have a more realistic chance of playing a land on turn three. Yeah. Like I, I think it, it, tends to mean that I think that the spells I have are good enough that I don't necessarily need to rely on drawing more of them than my opponent. You know, whether that's because I have card draw or bombs that need a bunch of mana or whatever. Um, So it's usually sort of a a little bit of a statement on that, I would say. Mm -hmm. I I Um, agree. So, yeah, so that's, that's kind of something that I think might, might not be obvious that like you, it's actually, upside to get to do this although you know another way to take through the possibility i think is to play a bunch of like situational spells like you know claim the firstborns or whatever and then plan to discard those to thrill a possibility in the games where they're not good i think that is another equally valid thing to do uh, oh yeah absolutely yeah tormenting voices is actually one of my all-time favorite like red limited cards i just love the design and i think it's criminally underplayed to be yeah totally I, I i was reading the mythic spoiler comments for thrill of possibility and one of them's like well now that they've made tormenting voice an instant i guess maybe i'll play it in my limited decks and i was like no no <laughs> now people are gonna draft this thing i wish they kept it a sorcery and they didn't know i want them all uh okay other factors that may ca- cause you to play more lands but may not be positive are color restrictions sometimes like you may get in this position, especially if you're like trying to play a third color or play some like red, red, red nonsense or whatever, uh, where you just look at your sources and you're like, well, I need 18 sources and I want to play 17 lands and they're all basic lands. And then you call up your friend Ben and you're like, hello, you know, math expert, can you help me make this work? And Ben, you know, writes a complicated proof showing you how there's no way to get 18 sources out of 17 basic lands. Uh, and that's when you realize you need to add an 18th land to get an 18th source. Uh, ben, is that a fair assessment for for what you do for your teammates? This is, yeah, sure, whatever. This this has kind of happened to me multiple times where I'm in the middle of a deck build, and I'm like, oh, I really want to splash this card, but I, I just don't think the mana can work. Like, I really want to play, you know, a, a large, like a like 10 islands at least, so that I can support my double blue cards or whatever, and, like, I only have one dual land, and, like, ugh but this card is so good, like, what do I do? And, you know, it, you, five minutes go by, and I'm just like, ah, oh, what should I do? And I'm just like, wait, I could just play more than 17 lands. <laughs> just, I always forget that that's a possibility sometimes. <laughs> and then remember, yeah, and, like, and halfway Sometimes it's even a big upside, like what you're describing where you have a busted card. Yeah, exactly, yeah. like. It's a great uh, a great way to enable that. Uh, and, I mean, often you're cutting a bad card again, because we were talking about the opportunity cost being a factor here. Like, 
very often the card you're cutting for a land is not that much more impactful than a land uh, in games, so uh, definitely a great play to make. Okay, so I think all that being said, we, we've kind of solidified ourselves as, as partisans in favor of adding extra lands uh, whenever reasonable, but it's worth mentioning that sometimes it's correct to go down on lands as well. Sometimes you want to go to 16 or 15 or 14 uh, in exceptional cases. Um, obviously, the first thing that makes people want to play fewer lands is when they're playing a low-curve and aggressive deck, right? When they're playing a deck that's uh, going to try and kill their opponent before they've played all their cards, right? Uh, Sam, do you think that's the, kind of the main thing that people think about when cutting lands from decks? Yeah, if you're, you know, one of, as we mentioned at the top of the show, one of the reasons why you add the 17th, why you want 17 lands is because you have more 5 and 6 drops than you do in, you know, in normal constructed decks. Um, so you need a higher percentage of lands. But, obviously, on the flip side, uh, you sometimes don't you know sometimes your decks have really low curves that that stop quite a bit lower than that and you don't need to have that many lands to to make it work so you just get to cut one and that's often a pretty big upside um typically also i think when you have decks with curves that low it it tends to mean that something went right for you in the draft um which means you like are more likely to be able to afford uh, to do this because you're more likely to have a good spell to slot in. I, I think that's generally true. It's not a hundred percent, but I, I feel like that's a sort of as a general thing is more likely to be true. Yeah. Often great limited decks are like, you know, these decks where it all comes together and you have an aggro deck that kills people very quickly. Um. Yeah. I think one thing to note here is that, um, to be cutting a land, I think it's more important that you have a lot of one and twos, ones and twos, rather than just saying that you don't have any like fives and sixes. Yeah. And I think the reason for that is that, you know, if your deck just has a ton of three drops, then cutting a land is actually a big cost because, I mean, the, the third land drop is the one that's harder to hit, right? Like it's it's harder harder to hit the third land drop than the the first two, um, and if you're stuck not casting a spell, and yet your deck doesn't have any powerful expensive cards in it, like that is really not a winning combination, right? Because the powerful expensive cards are sort of the ones that invalidate the cards that were previously played, and so can sort of catch you up. Whereas if your deck is just all three drops and you miss your third land drop, you're probably going to lose um, to either slow decks or fast decks, right? So I think you should be more incentivized to cut a land when you have a high density of ones and twos specifically, because then you'll be able to double spell, you'll hit, you'll be able to cast your spells more often. It's not a huge disaster if you're stuck on two or whatever. Um, like you should look for that signal rather than just saying like, oh, I don't have any expensive cards, so it's fine. Yeah, exactly. I agree that like the the three drop slot needs to be smaller than the two drop slot usually for this to be uh, something you want to do. I think another factor that we don't talk about a lot, but is like if you're playing a lot of cards like Opt in your deck, uh, those are the kind of cards that aren't actually card advantage, but do filter you through your deck with pretty high velocity. So you are going to find like your you, you know those cards replace themselves, but they don't uh, actually give you card advantage. 
so those are ones where I think you actually want to play less lands rather than more. So unlike cards that actually draw multiple cards, cards that just filter through your deck without giving you card advantage, um, if you draw too many lands with those, you're just going to burn out, right? If you opt into a land and you don't need it, that's... I mean, I guess you have the scry components, so that's kind of hard for that to happen. But, uh, you know, general, like, one-mana cantrip type cards, uh, I think... It's a, like you're not actually increasing the chances of double spelling, right? You're not drawing multiple cards off them. So uh, in future turns, you're not going to have more resources to bring to bear. Uh, and you're much more like if you're going to draw all the top 20 cards of your deck every game, you're almost always going to have enough lands in there to cast your spells. So you're not super worried about getting mana screwed either. I mean, I think a factor of this, though, is that. Um... I mean, we often talk about decks that have too much air, right? Like, sometimes we say that about constructed decks, sometimes we say that about limited decks, and that's referring to decks that just have a bunch of opts or, and a bunch of card draw and a bunch of, you know, cards that don't affect the board. Like, the thing is that to win a game of Magic, sometimes you actually just need a certain number of spells that actually impact the board in some way, right? And when you cut... Um, when you say, I'm going to play 18 lands and, like, and two opts and, and two Witching Wells or whatever... Now, all of a sudden, your deck has 22 cards in it that don't actually do anything. And that can be a problem if your opponent just, you know, happens to draw an above-average number of spells or whatever. You may not actually be able to win the game despite drawing a bunch of extra cards and having good card selection because you may not just have enough actual pieces of cardboard that impact the board. Um, and that's, that's I think, the main reason that people choose to cut lands for opts instead of... Uh, instead of spells because you know you can make the argument both ways that opt helps you find lands it also helps you find spells like so which one should you cut for it um and this is sort of why i think that people end up cutting lands for opts instead of the other way around sam what do you think about that uh thought process um yeah i think i think that is exactly correct and something that actually came up during our limited discussion at the last pro tour was using um witching well versus um versus unexplained vision and as far as how they should impact your land count and we came to basically exactly what ben was saying where i think if you have a lot of witching wells you tend to want to maybe cut down to 16 lands if witching wells and opts are kind of interchangeable here um whereas if you have a ton of of unexplained vision, it's a lot more likely that you want to play with, um, you know, play 18 lands because you can catch up from a start where you maybe have too many lands. You know, you, you just play your draw spell and then you're out from under that. Um, so th- those are like sort of two, I think, pretty relevant points that come up in current day, uh, current day standard or current day limited, rather. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a really good. And now, or I guess, situation from the current set, uh, which are always good to include in our shows. Cool, okay. Um, Those are the points that I had written out for this topic. I think we did a pretty good job of covering most of them. Uh, Is there anything that, while we're doing this, that either of you uh, wanted to mention that I missed? I mean, I think you you forgot to mention that um, if you have a a monocolored deck, for example, they usually play... Many fewer lands, right? Sometimes yes. as low as 15, even. Yeah, because uh-huh. you, you really don't need very many. Like, you, you do not need that many sources of your one color. So uh, the color elements of having extra lands are no longer... You don't get any value from more than, like, the 13th of them or whatever. 
Yeah, it's kind of funny because uh, Throne of Eldraine has like monocolored lands, like monocolored deck support, right? You, you draft monocolor a lot more often than you would in a normal set. Um, and yet it also, I think, incentivizes you to play extra lands because, you know, if you're playing monocolor lands, all of a sudden you have access to these special lands that, um, like uh, Mystic Sanctuary or Gingerbread Cabin, that reward you for having a bunch of, for, for being their fourth land. They are these ability lands that give you some tangible advantage, like a food or um, uh, a reclaim or a a one one or whatever. Um, and you know, so I think you just end up seeing Throne of Eldraine decks sort of washing out and ending up at seventeen most of the time anyway. But it's I don't know, it's sort of funny that normally I would expect the monocolored decks to have 15 or 16 lands in them, and yet in in this set I see most of them having 17 or maybe even 18 lands. Yeah, I, I think also the structure of the set has a little bit to do with it, with all of the four drops that they have. Yeah, that's yeah. true. A lot of the monocolor payoffs are four drops, so you just typically have, like, a bigger curve. Yeah, yeah. four is a really rough place to have a lot on your curve if you're at fewer than 17 lands. Um, that's where it starts to be, like, you're going to be waiting multiple turns for them pretty often. Uh, and, you know, like Garen Brig Paladins or whatever, the the big green payoff at common or whatever is up at five. So, um, yeah, I agree. Okay, uh, cool. Cool topic. Let's close out this week's show with a story from Benjamin. So, this story comes to you from Pro Tour Testing. So... Andre Strasky, who would eventually go on to win the Pro Tour, um, was on our testing team. And he and I spent basically four days straight, more or less, playing Food Mirrors. And, and I say Food Mirrors a little generously. I, I, I was usually playing Sultai, and he was usually playing Simic. Um, but, you know, he and I are just playing, and we're being watched by Paolo, uh, who would go on to get second at the pro tour, he would lose to Andre in the finals. Um, you know, and we're, we're, you know, testing as, as we do. And Andre is not, is not playing great. You know, he's making some mistakes. He's making some sequencing errors. He's casting Aether Gust at weird times. Um, so like in particular, he like cast it at a point in time where I had more information to make my choice. And so I like called out to him and I was like, Hey, Andre, like, don't you think you should have played this at this point instead? He's like, what, why? And then I explained to him why. And Paolo is just sitting there dumbfounded. And he's like, you know, Andre, like, have you gotten, you know, I, I feel like since the last time we played together, you've like lost 50 IQ points or something. <laughs> so he's just like totally aggro calling Andre stupid while we're testing. And then, you know, he would go on to lose to Andre in the food mirror in the finals of the pro <laughs> tour. <laughs> Oh. All right. Must be nice, though, to at least have 50 IQ points to lose. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I wouldn't know. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That's going to be all for us this week. We will unite again next week for more Allied Strategies. I also regret that I didn't correct Sam saying like the you, you mentioned the invokers without mentioning their original printing in legions. True. Which was back the the creature only set and they were the spells. Yeah.
Yeah. I forgot about that. Tristan, I'm surprised you know so much magic history. I read a lot of Mark Rosewater articles and listened to a lot of his podcasts. Mm. Pulling out of my driveway. Same. You know what that means. Dude, it's so smart as well. Like, just, like, figuring out when there, when you have time to record podcasts in your day and just being like, wow, I can just double dip on my drive to work time. Yeah. That is that is a man squeezing everything out of his 24 per day. Yeah, no kidding. Also, during this pro tour, okay, I wish we had talked about the fact that we played Fae of Wishes, because I thought it was actually really cool, and it, it might have been nice to talk about a little bit, so I'm sad yeah, that we that forgot to do that. Okay, just next um, week's card of the week, make it Fae of Wishes. <laughs> and then also, Tommy at this pro tour made fun of me for not knowing our intro music. <laughs> Oh, I definitely don't know our intro music. He was humming. He was just humming the intro music, and he was like, "Do you know what this is?" And I'm like, "No, I have no idea." What well, you're you don't doing. hear it every week, yeah. You you hear it very rarely. Yeah, 